Matthew chapter 5, verses 14 through 16. Jesus goes on and says, You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who's in heaven. Now, we ended our last study by looking at how Jesus called kingdom people, true believers, he called them the salt of the earth. Now, we saw that we are to be engaged in the world so that our salt influence would have a positive effect in the world. If you remember, we, we saw that salt had, adds flavor. We saw that salt acts as a preservative. Uh, salt produces a thirst. Salt melts coldness, and salt heals wounds. And so we've been called by God to go into the world and have an influence on the world. Last time we studied about salt. Tonight we're going to talk about light. But before we get into light, I want to be reminded of some things that Jesus prayed in John chapter 17 along this line. You can put a bookmark here in Matthew 5 and go with me to John chapter 17 and look at verses 14 through 23. <clears throat> Jesus is praying in the garden right before he goes to the cross. And he prays starting in verse 14. It says, Jesus says, I have given them your word, talking about his disciples. I have given them your word and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so have I sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. Now, I don't ask just for these alone, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. That's us. That they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you love me. Look closely at what Jesus says here. He said, in the same way in which you sent me into the world, Father, I'm now sending them into the world. And so we have to understand that we've been given the same responsibility and role, if you will, that Jesus had while he was on the earth. Jesus came as a demonstration, if you will, a manifestation of who God is. Being God himself, that was a little bit easier for him probably than us. But at the same time, as you're going to see tonight, it's actually not that hard if we learn how to let him do it through us. And we'll get to that in a little bit. But he said, I'm going to send them into the world just like you sent me into the world. And like I told you, Jesus is telling us as kingdom people, as true believers, where to go into the world. He says, I'm not going to pray that you take them out of the world. I want you to have them in the world. But I don't want them to be of the world. I want them to have an influence on the world, like salt has an influence on, the, on its surroundings, as light has an influence on its surroundings. Now, it's interesting also, though, he said a couple other things that I want to bring out that hopefully will make a little more sense later on in our study. One of the things is this. He says, uh, I pray that you protect them from the evil one. Now, when we hear protect from the evil one, our first thought is, well, that means Satan can't touch us. No. Think back. Well, before I ask this question, let me ask you a first one. When Jesus prays, do his prayers get answered? Okay, yes, they do. But do you know why? Because Jesus always prayed according to the will of the Father. 
Every prayer he prayed, even in the garden when he said, here's my will, nevertheless, not my will, but yours. Every prayer Jesus prayed, he prayed according to the will of the Father. And in 1 John chapter 5, the Bible says that if we ask anything according to his will, we know that he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, we know that we have the things that we ask. So if Jesus' prayers were always according to the will of the Father, that means the Bible says that Jesus' prayers were all answered. So when Jesus prays, protect them from the evil one. Let me ask you this next question then. What happened to the disciples of Jesus? What happened to the apostles? What happened to all of them? They were almost all. And even John was tortured in in a sense in many ways. But they were all, except John, put to death for their faith. So what is this protection from the evil one then? Realize the protection from the evil one is not a physical protection. The protection from the evil one is a spiritual one where he keeps us secure. He keeps us saved. He keeps us safe. Our salvation is kept in heaven for us who are shielded by God, by faith, by God's power through faith. The Bible's real clear that if you're in Christ, he's protecting you from the evil one. You're eternally secure and God's holding on to you. But that doesn't mean you won't go through stuff. Actually, God's desire is that we go through stuff so that we can be salt and light. See, we want everything to be wonderful. That's why the churches are full of the kind of preaching that says, hey, if you're a Christian, God wants you to be a millionaire and, and drive a Mercedes and, and you're not supposed to be, ever be sick and all this kind of stuff. We like that because it separates us from the rest of the world. But actually, the Bible teaches that we're gonna, the rain falls on the just and the unjust. We're to go out into the world, but we're going to let them see the difference between us and them and how we react to what goes on to us, which is just what's going on to them. We may get cancer, but they may gonna get, they're going to get cancer too. And how we respond is going to be hopefully different than how they respond according to what's going on within us. So understand that as he was sent into the world, we've been sent into the world. Now, with that in mind, we're going to dive into light a little bit tonight. Tonight, we continue in this theme as we see that Jesus goes on to say that we kingdom people, again, true believers, are the light of the world. Now, before I go any further, I have to remind you, this light does not come from us, nor can we manufacture it. It comes from Jesus himself as he lives in and through us. See, when we hear Jesus say, you're the light of the world, immediately we start thinking, I'm the light of the world. Well, if you start heading in that direction, you already made a problem. Because if you have any light at all, it isn't coming from you. It's coming from who? Have you ever heard people say something like this? Um, I'm going to shine for Jesus. You can't shine for Jesus. Either Jesus is shining through you himself, or you're not shining. It's Jesus shining himself or you're not shining. You cannot shine for Jesus. Let me remind you of this truth by laying the scriptural foundation. Go back to John chapter 1. We were in chapter 17 where we just left off. Go to John chapter 1 and look at verses 1 through 18. And look closely what the scripture says. It says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Now he, the Word, was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Now, by the way, Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 and following clearly say that Jesus made everything. So who is this the Word? Who's this Word? It's Jesus. In him, in Jesus was life. And the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Now, there was a man sent from God whose name was John. 
John, we know him as John the Baptist. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people, the Jews, did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Now no one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. Look again at verse 18. No one's ever seen God, but the only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. Isn't that kind of crazy sentence? God's at his own side, and he's made the Father known. It's a hard thing for us to grasp, but God is one God, but he's manifested himself eternally in three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And the Son who has always existed because he was a part of creation. Yes, Genesis 1.1 says in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. But the Bible also says that Jesus created everything. Oh, and the Bible also says the Holy Spirit was hovering over the face of the deep during creation. The Holy Spirit, God himself was involved. All three parts of himself, if you will, were all involved in the creation. But then the Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. Now... Who is the light then? Was John the Baptist a light? No. Well, he was a light when he allowed Jesus to shine through. But actually, John the Baptist never even got to the indwelling Holy Spirit like we do. He was pointing out the light. It even says he was not the light, but he pointed out the light. Now, we are the light of the world, yet at the same time, we're not the light. It's the light that's indwelling us, which is now going to be hopefully seen in the world. And we're going to get to that later tonight because you're going to see back in Matthew 5, Jesus says something very interesting about us being light. Go to John chapter 8 again and look at verse 12. John chapter 8, verse 12. Again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Go over to chapter 9. Look at verses 1 through 5. As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth, and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, It was not that this man sinned, nor his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. Now we must work the works of him who sent me while it's day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. What did Jesus say, mean when he said, uh, night is coming when no one can work? No. Exactly, Jeremy. He said they're going to put him to death. There was a time period between his death and his resurrection where there was no light. For those three days, there was no light. By the way, how'd the, how'd the disciples do during those three days? 
they did everything they can do. John chapter 15, verse 5, apart from me, Jesus says, you can do nothing. And during those three days, they scattered. They all ran to their own homes. Go ahead. Uh, technically, I see where you're going, but I'm going to say no. Here's why. Because on that first night that he rose from the dead, that first day that he rose from the dead, that evening, if you remember, he comes into the upper room and he breathes on the disciples. And he says, receive the Holy Spirit. Now, there's been a lot of confusion about that where people think that was the indwelling, but it's not. Because the Bible is very clear that the indwelling happens in Acts chapter 2. But at the same time, then what was this breathing on them and saying to them, receive the Holy Spirit? Jesus knew that they couldn't even wait in Jerusalem until they received the Holy Spirit like he had told them to, unless he empowered them to be able to do it. And like in the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit would come upon somebody and empower them for a season. But remember, if they walked in disobedience like Saul did, God would remove his spirit from them. That's why David in Psalm 51 prayed, don't remove your Holy Spirit from me when he sinned with Bathsheba. We don't have to worry about that because when he comes to indwell us, he stays and he never leaves nor forsakes. But at the same time, Jesus breathed on them and gave them the power of the Holy Spirit to even be able to do what they needed to do until he came to indwell them. And so I want you to understand that the Bible is very clear that this light of the world is Jesus himself. It's Jesus. It's not you. It's not me. When Jesus says, you're the light of the world, it's only because he's in us. It's only because he's in us. And that's very, very important. You see, as we sent, saw earlier, Jesus has now sent us into the world in the same way that he was sent into the world. And as we just said, it's not us, but Jesus through us doing his work and shining his light into the world. We are the body of Christ, the Bible says. We're the body of Christ, but who's empowering the body? Jesus He's the light of the world. And now I'm, I'm going to hammer this because you're going to say, say to yourself, well, Jim, we get it. Move on. No, you don't. I'm going to tell you right now. And you're going to see as we go further, we don't get it. And it's manifested itself in how we do church. It's how we function, the things we say. By the end of tonight, you're going to have a few things you've said yourself blown up because we say to ourselves, oh, I understand that. It's Jesus. It's not me. It's Jesus. If we really understood it, most of what we do, we wouldn't do. And that's where we're going to go tonight. Go to Colossians chapter 1. <clears throat> Go to Colossians chapter 1. Look at verses 28 and 29. Paul understood this. In Colossians chapter 1, verse 28, Paul says, Him, Jesus, we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy, that he powerfully works in me. He quickly had to clarify. He says, I'm working, I'm toiling, I'm struggling. But then he says, well, let me make sure you understand. It's not me. What I'm doing is by his power. And you're going to see that again as we lay this all out. It's going to become clear through our study. We all know Philippians chapter 2, verse 12, where it says that we're to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. The very next verse, though, says, because it's God who works in us both to will, that's the desire, and to act according to his good purpose. Folks, we need to allow this truth to sink in. For us to be the light of the world, to go into this world in the same way that Jesus went into the world, is to understand that we can't do anything, but Jesus wants to do it through us. We can't shine for Jesus. We have to let Jesus himself shine. And hopefully tonight that will become a little more clear. Go back to Matthew chapter 5. Interestingly... In telling us that we're the light of the world, Jesus has to tell us to let our light shine before others. 
Look what he says again in verse 14. You're the light of the world. A city that's set on a hill can't be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who's in heaven. Why would Jesus say to them, you're the light of the world, but you've got to let the light shine? Why would he have to tell the light to shine? You got it, because we choose whether or not the world's going to see Jesus or whether or not they're going to see us. By the way, does anybody else here in this room have a struggle with your flesh wanting to be in control? Does anybody else understand this struggle of, I know this truth that Jesus is in me, but my first reaction probably isn't very often Jesus? And this is what we need to allow this truth to start sinking in. I wrote in my notes here, why would Jesus have to tell the light of the world to shine? Because we choose on a daily basis if we're going to let the world see Jesus or if we'll try to accomplish what only Jesus can do in our own strength, in our own effort. Remember when Jesus was in the garden and he was being tempted by Satan? And we rooted it down to all of the temptations pretty much were, Jesus, are you going to fulfill the will of the Father in your own power and ability or are you going to yield yourself to the Father's plan? Hey, you have the ability to turn stones into bread. If you're hungry, go ahead and turn these stones into bread. That wasn't what the Father said for him to do. Uh, you, you, yeah, you want these people to believe in you and understand that you're God. If you really are the son of God, just go stand up on that te- pinnacle of the temple and throw yourself off. You know, I know you won't die and they'll all believe. Again, are you going to do the work that God's called you to do in your strength, in your ability, in your power, with your creativity? Or are you going to humbly yield to the way the Father has for you to do it? Oh, and let me just tell you, Jesus, um, the way the Father has for you to do it isn't going to be as much fun. Are you willing to humble yourself and be used as a servant according to the Father's plan? Or are you going to have to have it done your way? Now, I'm going to say something to you here. I want you to stick with me. This is a bigger problem than we think. As we're going to get into tonight, you're going to see that the church today has been going away from this understanding. And most, and I hate to say it, Most of what we do as individual Christians and as churches is not in the power of the Spirit, but it's in the effort of the flesh. Actually, Paul actually had to address this problem. We shouldn't be surprised. It's been a problem with the original church. It's been a problem with all of us. Have you ever heard people say, we need to go back to the days of the early church? Have you ever heard people preach like that and say that? They never read their Bibles. The early church was just as messed up as we are. Go to 2 Corinthians chapter 2. If you were to go back and look at the early church, they were all fussing over which was the better preacher. and They were getting drunk at the Lord's Supper. They had a guy who was in leadership in the church sleeping with his father's wife, and they all thought it was cool. And I could go on. The early church was just as messed up as we are. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, look at verses... Uh, And we'll start in verse 14. But thanks be to God, he says, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one were a fragrance from death to death, 
to the other a fragrance from life to life. And I love this. Who is sufficient for these things? For we are not like so many peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God, in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. Paul said, God is parading us through the world. He's sending us into the world. We're not to be of it, but we're to be in it. And as we go through us, he is spreading the aroma, the fragrance of Christ. As Christ shines through us, as Christ is allowed to take control through us, the aroma of Christ is going out into the world. To some, it smells like death and they hate it. To others, it smells like life and they respond. And I love how he says, Who's sufficient for these things? If you were to go back and look, you'll see in your Bibles that in a story that Paul has been taken to Rome, he's there under imprisonment and waiting to meet with Caesar and all these leadership in Rome. And as he's there, these Jews in Rome all gather. They say, you know, we've heard about this Christianity this way. We haven't heard anything bad about you, Paul. Why don't you go ahead and talk to us about this? So Paul has all this room full of these Jewish people. They come and he shares the gospel He shares who Jesus is and shares from the scriptures and how he was crucified, how he rose from the dead and how salvation, he's the Messiah, comes through faith in him. And the Bible says half of the room responded and said, we want to believe, we want to get saved. And the other half walked away angry. They were upset with him. How dare you? Now let me ask you a question. Did Paul word it well with some people and bad with the others? He said the same words. They all heard the same words. But some responded positively. Some responded negatively. Here's where we're going to start going a little deeper. Have you ever shared the gospel and then thought to yourself, I could have done it better or I could have done it differently or maybe someone else should have done it? See, without realizing it, you think you have some power over whether or not someone believes. You're putting your confidence in the flesh, not in the spirit. Now, Jesus said something back in John chapter 17 that I didn't bring out that I've been saving for this point. And it's going to be hammered even more in just a second. He said, I'm sending them into the world and I want you to sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. Father, I've given them the same role you gave me. I'm living now within them, and I want you to set them apart for your purposes, and I want you to use them in the way you desire, but you need to set them apart in your truth. Your word is truth. Folks, we need to get to the point where we understand that the power that we have is not our ability to communicate it. It's just simply the word of God itself, the truth of the gospel the truth of the Bible. When we start thinking, I could have done a better job, or maybe I should have said this, or maybe we start thinking that it has something to do with us. And without realizing it, this problem's gotten bigger. And you're going to see as we go on, I'm going to give you more illustrations how it gets bigger. Who's sufficient for this role of being going out in the world and have people respond to Jesus or not? Not you and me. Then why do we look at ourselves and whether or not we can or can't? Because we don't have control over whether someone responds positively to the light or not, and because our flesh wants credit, and because we've been taught to measure results, we often tend to look to man's methods or creativity to accomplish what only the Spirit 
can accomplish. I'm going to say that to you again. I want you to listen again to these words. Because we don't have control over whether someone responds positively to the light or not, and because our flesh wants credit, and because we've been taught to measure results, we often tend to look to man's methods or creativity to accomplish what only the Spirit can accomplish. By the way, I'm going to chase a rabbit real quick, and then I'm going to come back to what we're talking about. When it comes to giving, do you all not know that the Bible says that if people give, it's because God gave them the grace to give? If you go look in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, Paul talks about how God gave the Macedonians, even though they were poor, he gave them the grace to give, and they gave generously beyond their means. How can someone ever give beyond their means? Because God's doing it through them. But it's a grace of God. And the scripture actually says in 2 Corinthians chapter 9 that God loves a cheerful giver and someone that gives, listen, not under compulsion. But have you ever noticed how much Christian ministries use compulsion? Hey, in the next hour, if you give, it will be doubled because someone has pledged. Oh, and half the time, let me tell you, and I'm shooting low to be safe, but half the time, that's not an actual double. That person's already pledged that amount of money, and it's all going to go. Your money wasn't doubled. Half the time I say, well, if my amount doubles, I was going to give 10 bucks, now I'm going to give five. So now God counts for 10. But we use compulsion to get people to give, don't we? When the scripture says that God doesn't want ever to have people give under compulsion. Yet most of us in the church today use compulsion to get people to give. You can get a tax write-off. We don't realize it, but this problem is much bigger than we think. Go to 2 Corinthians chapter 3. You're in chapter 2, go to chapter 3. Look at verses 4 through 6. Paul says, such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything is coming from us. I love how he answers his own question, who's sufficient? Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything is coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant. Not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. This is the confidence we're supposed to have. The confidence to know that as I go and share this truth with my neighbors and my friends and whoever God puts in my path, all I have to do is share with them the truth. I don't have to stay and make sure it sticks. I don't have to try and make sure it help, they get it. We're just to share it, live it, let the light shine through us and let God do what he's going to do. Go to 2 Corinthians chapter 3 and look at verses 12 through 18. Since we have such a hope, since we have this confidence that, that we're not sufficient, but we have power and sufficiency because of Jesus, we're very bold. Not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. Now, hang on for a second. Some of you might not know what he just talked about. If you don't know the Old Testament, you really won't understand the New Testament. I've said that over and over. You've got to know the Old Testament to understand the New Testament. But in the Old Testament, the Bible said that when Moses would go hang out in the presence of God, just being in the presence of God and his kind of glory was so powerful that when Moses came down from the mountain, he was still glowing a reflective glory that the people were freaked out because they're like, dude, you're glowing. You're radioactive. You know, we got to put on some suits to get around you or something here. But 
Interestingly enough, the longer he stayed away from the presence of God, the glory started to go down. And here now we see that Moses put a veil over his face. In the, in the Old Testament, it looks like the whole purpose was just so the people wouldn't be freaked out by the fact that he was glowing. But there was a second reason, is because Moses also knew that the glory was going down, and he didn't want people to realize the glory was going down. He wanted them to think he had that glory still. And so he put a veil over his face to kind of hide the fact that his glory was shrinking. We're not like that, he says. Their minds... The Jews were hardened. For to this day, when they read the Old Covenant, that same veil remains unlifted. Because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. By the way, that blows Calvinism out of the water. When's the veil removed? When they turn to the Lord. But it's only through Christ is it taken away. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there's freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this crumbs, comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Folks, we have something Moses didn't have. You see, Moses' glory would go away. We have a glory that if we learn how to walk in it and say no to the flesh and yes to the spirit on a daily basis, have a glory that will actually get greater and greater and greater. The longer we walk with Jesus, that's why Paul said, I want to know Christ more. I want more. We have a glory that's increasing and we actually can have a greater effect as light in the world. Again, not you or me, but Jesus. It's time we actually believe this stuff and we're bold just to share with people in love what the scripture says and leave it alone. Go to chapter 4. Look at verse 1. Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart, but we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word, but by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And if even if our gospel is veiled, it's veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For we pro what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of the God in the face of Jesus Christ. By the way, is anybody noticing this light theme all through the scriptures now? It's been there all along. But if they don't get it, it's not, it has nothing to do with us. Satan's blinded their eyes. If they get it, it has nothing to do with you. Have you ever heard people say this? So-and-so is really good at sharing the gospel. Because so many people get saved when they share the gospel. And we think it has something to do with that person. We don't get it. It has nothing to do with that person. It's the power of God. And by God's grace, they responded. And if they don't, you didn't do anything wrong. It also says we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. And we refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. Some of you are old enough probably to remember this. Does anybody ever remember Pack-a-Pew Sunday? You may know what I'm talking about when I say Pack-a-Pew Sunday. You know what I'm talking about, right? We used to do all this stuff to try to get more people to come to church. And we used to have Pack-a-Pew Sunday where if you would, you, each family would be given a pew or, or a couple. And if you could get your pew full, you got a prize. 
And if we can reach so many people in attendance next Sunday, the pastor in the, from the pulpit will kiss a pig. And I'm not making this stuff up. On the lips, the pastor will kiss a pig if we can get to 150 people in the sanctuary tomorrow morning. I'm serious. We do all this silly stuff. Have you ever heard a preacher say, if each of you would invite just one person and bring one person with you next week, we could double our attendance in one week. Folks, if people walk in the door of a church, who's done the work? It has to be God. Because of the fact that the Bible actually says that no one seeks God. If anybody even seeks God, he's doing it. Oh, here's part of the problem, though. You can actually accomplish stuff in the flesh that you can measure, but it's not of God. And we filled our churches with people that aren't of God. And we wonder why we act the way we do. I would rather be a part of a small group of people that were for real and letting Jesus live through them than a big group of having to deal with all the mess of the flesh and the world being in the church, wouldn't you? Oh, but that goes against everything we've been taught to measure our attendance, church growth methods. This is why Jesus, well, let me give you one more passage. Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. You're in 2 Corinthians. Go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Look at verses 1 through 5. When I came to you, brothers, Paul says, I didn't come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. I don't know how many of you have ever gotten to travel much and to see what's going on in the church around the globe, especially in America. But as I travel around, you would be surprised how little Scripture is in our Sunday morning services. I love what's going on here at LifePoint, how even in your singing, there's Scripture, there's Scripture, there's Scripture. But at most churches, the pastor will get up at the sermon time, read a verse, close the Bible, and then let's just talk about it. And we get caught up in, boy, that guy, he's just a great delivery. You know what? Paul said, I didn't, I didn't even try any of that stuff. Because I don't want what has been accomplished have been accomplished because of my powerful personality or my powerful speech. I want it to be of God and real. Are we willing to believe that the word of God is enough? You ever heard people say, we need to make the word of God relevant? We've just said that the word's irrelevant. Well, if we have a band, what if we do this? And we put our confidence in a whole lot of stuff that's not the light. It might be good for us to slow down a little bit and prayerfully allow the Spirit to show us what do we do on Sunday that's really trusting in man, man's creativity, man's motivation, and not the Spirit. Well, Jim, if you do stuff like that, you're going to lose numbers. Jesus seemed to be okay with that. And he said, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no part in me. Many of his disciples went away and said, this is a hard teaching. 
who can accept it? And he let them walk away, and he turned to the 12 and said, you guys are free to go too. No one's holding you here. Are we okay with that? But we've just started this new building program, and we really need the money. You ever thought about how often we think about, what if this family who's a big giver leaves? It's a bigger problem than we realize. We've put a lot of confidence in the flesh, and we really don't understand what it means to be the light. This is why Jesus said, let your light shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify who? Your father. I'm not going to have you turn there for the sake of time, but in John chapter 3, Nicodemus comes to Jesus. Remember, folks, Jesus went into the world in the same way that we've been sent into the world. Was Jesus God? Yes. Could Jesus have done things in his own power? Yes. But Jesus humbled himself. We've already dealt with this in our study earlier. He, in the kenosis, he limited himself, and he only did what the Father would have him do. And in John chapter 14, verse 10, he says, The works you see me doing are not me doing them. It's the Father doing his work through me. So John chapter 3 happens, and Nicodemus comes to Jesus at night, and he says, <laughs> Nicodemus didn't understand that Jesus was God. But he said, we know you're from God, because nobody could do the things you're doing unless God were with them. I love it. They saw the works of Jesus and glorified God. Go to Acts chapter 4 real quick. I'm about to blow something else up you've believed your whole life as well. Go to Acts chapter 4, look at verses 13 through 22. <clears throat> By the way, Peter and John are, have just healed a man. Actually, they didn't heal a man. Jesus did through them. And they've been brought before the same council that had Jesus put to death. In verse 13, now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, common men, they were astonished, and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. Now, before we go any further, think for a minute. These people go, these are common, uneducated men. It's obvious that what they're doing is not them. Have you ever thought that maybe the preacher could do a better job of sharing the gospel with your neighbor than you? Let's be honest, you have, haven't you? Everybody's thought that. Because we're educated, because I've been to seminary, because I have a degree and I'm a reverend. And we think that I could do a better job in sharing the gospel than somebody else. We still think the power is in man and not in the word. And not in God himself who lives within us. And actually, listen closely to me, we have hurt the gospel by the fact that we have actually relegated it to the preachers and the pastors. When the Bible says in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 through 16, that God gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, some to be pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of the ministry. The people that are supposed to be out there sharing the gospel are the church people. People out there visiting the hospitals and, and, and counseling people and coming alongside brothers and sisters according to their gifts should be the body. We're supposed to be feeding you the word of God so that you would be rooted and grounded in the word, which is Jesus, and rooted and grounded in him. And you would go live the life that he wants to live through you. And you wouldn't expect it to be done by us. And actually, when I get up and speak, even though it may be powerful, some people will say, he's been to school, he's been trained, he's been taught to say that. But when you get up from behind your desk or behind your shovel or your broom or whatever it is you do for work and you share the same thing, the power of God is demonstrated.
we've believed this stuff. Well, like I said, this problem is bigger than we thought. Now keep reading what happens next. Verse 14, but seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, What shall we do with these men? For a notable sign has been performed through them that is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we can't deny it. Real quick, let me just chase another rabbit real quick. I believe the Bible teaches that Jesus is still doing miracles. I believe God is still healing. I believe God's still raising the dead. Part of the reason why we don't see it so much is because we're trying to accomplish the work of God in the flesh, and there's no power in that. Vance Havner, years ago, when he was preaching on the fact that, you ever notice when Jesus would heal somebody or do something, most of the time he'd say, don't tell anybody. Isn't that interesting? Vance Havner put it real well. He said, Jesus performed miracles and wouldn't advertise them. The church is advertising them and not performing them. A notable sign has been performed through them, and it's evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Did anybody catch that? A notable sign has been performed what? Through them. Even they realized it wasn't these guys doing this. But in order that it may not spread any further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. So they called them and charged them not to speak or to teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, whether it's right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge, for we can't help it. <coughs> Excuse me. We cannot but speak of what we have seen and we heard. It's just coming out of us. And when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people. For all were praising God for what had happened. For the man on whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. Now, don't miss what happens next. I love what Peter and John do next. They don't rest in what God had just done, but they keep asking God for more boldness to keep doing it. They don't walk out of there going, hey, did you see what we just did? We talked up to those guys. We're pretty impressive. Hey, I tell you what, why don't we start a ministry and put our names on it and everybody will start looking to us. They humbly go back. Verse 23, when they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why do the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. They realized that it wasn't them. And they humbly went back and asked God for more power. You're the one who did this. This is lining up with your word. You heard their threats. Give us even more boldness. What's happened to the church, folks? What's happened to the church? I mean, we've just been seeing here tonight that we're the light of the world and that Jesus is the light. And wherever Jesus 
There was, there was massive influence, whether positive or negative. You, there's nobody that felt halfway about Jesus. They loved him or hated him. What's happened to the church? Well, in the time we have left, I want to show you briefly what I think the Scripture says was going to happen and what has happened to the church. Go to Revelation chapter 2. I'm going to look at two letters from Jesus to the two churches in Revelation. Hopefully you understand that as we look at the letters to the churches, even though it says to the church at Ephesus or the church at Smyrna or the church at Philadelphia or the church at Laodicea, it every time says, hear what the Spirit says to the churches in each of those letters. So what's written to Ephesus applies to all of us. What's written to Laodicea applies to all of us. In Revelation chapter 2, look at verses 1 through 5. To the angel or the messenger in Ephesus write, The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands, I know your works. By the way, God just showed me something I've never seen before in all my years of teaching Revelation. He just showed me that he holds me in his right hand. Wow. That's pretty cool. Remember, the stars were the messengers to the churches. The lampstands were the churches. Thank you, Lord, for that. He says, I know your works, your toil and your patient endurance and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary, but I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent. And do the works that you did at first. If not, I'm going to come to you and remove your lampstand. I'm going to remove your church from its place unless you repent. Jesus writes to the church at Ephesus and says, I know what you're doing. You guys are working really hard. You're testing those who claim to be apostles. Remember back in Acts chapter 20 when Paul told you guys that savage wolves were going to come in from among the flock and they're going to try to steal away disciples and you're testing those who claim to be apostles and proving them false. You're doing all this stuff. By the way, everything Jesus is saying that they were doing, imagine a 50-year-old deacon or a deacon of 50 years getting a banquet for all his years of service. We would have listed all of this and said... Wouldn't we? This person's been dutiful, faithful, worked really hard. Hey, hey, brother so-and-so, good job for 50 years of hard work for Jesus. But Jesus says, you're nowhere near me. Remember the height from which you've fallen. We can do the work of God in our own strength and be far from Jesus. Real quickly, go to Jeremiah chapter 2. You want to know, what does he mean when he says, remember, uh, go back and do the things you did at first, or you've left your first love, or the love you had at first. Go to Jeremiah chapter 2. <clears throat> God speaks to the nation of Israel through the prophet Jeremiah in chapter 2, and it clarifies what he means here. Jeremiah chapter 2, verses 1 through 8. The word of the Lord came to me, saying, Go and proclaim in the hearing of Jerusalem. Thus says the Lord, I remember the devotion of your youth, your love as a bride, how you followed me in the wilderness in a land not sown. Israel was holy to the Lord. The first fruits of his harvest, all who ate of it incurred guilt and disaster came upon them, declares the Lord. Hear the word of the Lord, O house of Jacob and all the clans of the house of Israel. Thus says the Lord, what wrong did your fathers find in me that they went far from me and went after worthlessness and became worthless? They didn't say, where's the Lord anymore who brought us up from the land of Egypt, who led us in the wilderness and land of deserts and pits and a land of drought and deep darkness and a land that 
that none passes through where no man dwells. And I brought you into a plentiful land to enjoy its fruits and its good things. But when you came in, you defiled my land and made my heritage an abomination. Oh, and the priest stops asking, where is the Lord? Those who handled the law didn't know me. The shepherds transgressed against me, and the prophets prophesied by Baal and went after things that do not profit. Folks, remember when you first got saved and how excited you were, and you were humble, you were a baby, and all you wanted was the word because it was alive to you, and you just wanted to hear what God had to say, and you knew you didn't know nothing. But all you wanted was to know what he was saying and just trust him. And you. But something's happened to us. I don't think it's any accident that God actually has had us husband and wife and making babies and maturing. Because when, you remember when your babies were first born and they were totally dependent on you? You remember when you held them and they would just kind of stare at you? Remember moms when you, they, they, would, they couldn't even see real good with their eyes, but they'd recognize your voice. And they'd follow you. And then when you were little, I'm sorry, when they were little, they would just stare at you and you were everything. But then they get a little older. And they become teenagers. Heard a Christian comedian recently say that he thinks God gave us teenagers for a reason. I think he said, he, God, he said you know what? God says, I'll tell you what I'm going to do. How does it feel to have someone made in your image that denies your existence? Oh, but if you know teenagers, even though they'll say, yeah, I know. You ever hear that? I know. Um, they act like they're smarter than you and you're the dumbest person on the earth. They still know you have power that they don't have. You have keys and money. So they keep you around for that. Folks, we've done the same thing with God. He, he, God says, I remember, you remember when, when, I, when as a young bride you followed me? Even though it was in a land of deserts and snakes and all this stuff, you were devoted to me and I took care of you. But then I brought you into this land of plenty. And you stop saying, where's the Lord? I remember when Becky and I were first married, just this past weekend, by the way, we moved our daughters, 25 and 22, into their first apartment. And when we were done moving them into their first apartment, Becky and I turned to each other and said, do you realize we just hauled three to five times as much stuff than we had when we first were married? We sat our girls down because they were like, we still need this and we need that. We're like, you don't understand. We didn't even realize it. We look back when we moved into our first trailer on seminary campus. We didn't even have a bed. Here we were making sure the girls had beds and dressers and all this stuff. My wife and I moved to our first house in a trailer in New Orleans Seminary Campus where everything we fit fit in the back of a Zuzu pickup truck, a baby, a pup. It's called the Zuzu pup. It had a topper on it. Everything we owned, including a refrigerator, was in the back of that truck. And we didn't even think. I said, we drove to New Orleans to move into our first house and we didn't even have a bed? We didn't. We knew there was a sleeper sofa in the, in the trailer, so we were going to sleep in that one night with that bar in the middle of your back, and we changed our mind, and we took the mattress out of it. And by the way, the couch was no longer comfortable with the mattress out of it, but we took that little cushy mattress and put it on the floor in our bedroom, and every morning for six months of our first year of married life, we would just roll over and stand up because the mattress was only this far off the ground. It wasn't until a pastor, former pastor, came to visit us and we were giving him a tour of our trailer and they were like, this is our bedroom. And they were like, what's that? Well, that's where we sleep. He said, come with me. And he bought us a bed that we had for like 12 years. I remember when we were first married and we had one vehicle. But all of a sudden, he blesses us. And we stop following. 
Go to Revelation chapter 3. You can be doing the work of God. You can be going through church life. You can be on all these committees. You could be working sound. You could be working on a singing praise team. But if God is not the center of everything, Revelation chapter 3, look at verses 14 through 22. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea, right? The words of the amen, the unfa- the, sorry, the faithful, the true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You're neither cold nor hot. Man, I wish you were either cold or hot. See, if you're cold, you'd realize you had a problem. If you're hot, that's what I want you to be. But because you're lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I'm going to spit you out of my mouth. And I believe without question that's going to happen at the rapture. For you say, I'm rich and I have prospered. I need nothing, not realizing that you're wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourselves and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve you to anoint your eyes that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I'll come into him and eat with him and he with me. Now the one who conquers, I'll grant it with him to sit with me on my throne, as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. We just saw what he said to the first church in the church age, and what he says to the church in the last part of the church age here in Laodicea. And by the way, don't read this rich as in money. This is a spiritual wealth. And here's the problem with the church today. The church thinks they're spiritual. Even the churches that are teaching false doctrine, they claim that they're the most spiritual. And he says to him, by the way, we've all heard over the years, behold, I stand at the door and knock. And we've always thought that that was a message to the lost world. The context is it was written to the church in the last days. Jesus wrote to the church, um, hello. I'd love to be a part of what's going on. And there's a rapture coming where I'm going to take those that are mine. And you think you're okay and you're going to be left behind. I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. I don't want to. One last passage. Go to 2 Timothy chapter 3. Look at verses 1 through 5. But understand this, that in the last days, there will come times of difficulty, for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, Treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power. Avoid such people. By the way, did that not read like the 11 o'clock news? Did that also, I mean, when you think about what's going on in the world today and Instagram and Twitter and all the Facebook and all the posts and everybody, that's what's going on. People bashing each other and treating each other horribly and verbally abusing people and being brutal and flaunting their lavish lifestyles and everybody wanting to be like the lifestyles of the rich and famous. And at the same time, 
you get churches that are full of people that have the appearance of godliness, but they deny his power. Folks, I'm just, all I can say to you is, don't be one of them. How do we do this then? Romans 12, 1 and 2 comes to mind. I urge you, I beg you, King James, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies, your flesh, as a living sacrifice. Don't conform to the pattern of this world, but by the daily renewing of your mind, which, by the way, is your spiritual act of worship, you'll be able to know what the will of God is. We need to say no to the flesh and yes to the spirit. By the way, and if you don't get this right, we're going to start over. <coughs> what do we need to spend most of our time doing then in order to have that happen? Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth and prayer. It's not an accident that every Sunday school lesson, every sermon, every Bible study could end in the need for prayer and Bible study. Because that's the only place and the only way that the light will be allowed to shine. The only thing that defeats our flesh and our enemy is the Word of God. The only thing that empowers us to live the life that Jesus wants us to live is prayer. And folks, it's no accident that all that came out of Jesus' mouth was Scripture. You ever notice? Everything that came out of Jesus' mouth was Scripture. Oh, and he spent much time in prayer. All I can do is beseech you. Go spend time in this book in prayer and let Jesus live through you the what he wants to and stop putting any confidence in the flesh. I love you. We'll see you in two weeks. Thanks for coming.